the Bible that I'm using today, this one, has 1,426 pages of text beginning from Genesis 1-1 through the end of Revelation 22. And, and if my math is correct, I, I think it is, if I look at the middle page of that text, which would be page, uh, what, 713, I'm looking at Psalm 127, 128, 129, and the beginning of 130. So I'm in the Psalms. Now, some industrious person once took the time to figure out the middle verse of all Scripture. I guess he didn't have a lot to do uh, otherwise. But it's Psalm 118, verse 8. So my Bible's off a little bit. I'm not right there in the middle, but it's close. But, but, but this verse and these chapters uh, don't really tell the story because there's more to Psalms than the fact that it's in the center of the Bible. I think it's uh, arguably true that it's the very heart of spiritual experience. And uh, it, it's a book worthy of being examined and studied and thought about, read, and appreciated. This book, of course, was a favorite of Jewish readers. And why wouldn't it be? The Jews loved Jesus. I mean, they loved Jesus. They loved David. And they loved the memory of David. And David wrote a number of the Psalms. And so, for Jewish readers, there was a connection to David by reading his songs and psalms. Uh, they used the psalms uh, for songs, uh, for the temple services, and then also uh, in their synagogues. And it was often read during those public services. Um, the church in its earliest days often used the psalms in public worship. They, again, read and sung. And, and I think it's safe to say psalms is still a favorite today. A number of our songs come from the psalms. And you can look at the back of your songbook. We won't do that right now. But in the back of your songbook, where it talks about Songs related to scriptures, when you look at psalms, you'll find a number of songs. And we remember some of those as we sing them. I think it is also true that psalms is read often even by people who don't read much from the rest of the Bible. If, if someone reads much of anything from the Bible, he's likely to read from the psalms. We, yeah, the 23rd Psalm is, of course, quoted and read by people who don't know anything else much about the Bible. I, I, I think you can establish the importance of this book to us by the fact that it is the most quoted of all Old Testament books in the New Testament. I'm using New King James Version. I don't know if there would be any shouldn't be any difference in yours, but 116 quotes from the Psalms can be found in the New Testament. And that's one-third of all of Old Testament quotes that are found in the New Testament. Uh, 
And so fully one-third of the quotes that you read from the Old Testament in the New Testament come from this single book, the book of Psalms. Now, over the past few weeks during our uh, survey of the Old Testament, we have been able only to skim the surface of the books that we've been talking about. And obviously that's true today. There are 150 Psalms. And so we're not going to get deep into this book. Now, I hope that you haven't been sleeping so long that you forgot that just this summer we studied the Psalms, right? June, July, and August, we studied the Psalms. Uh, We looked at individual Psalms and talked about the Psalms. Uh, And so some of this that I'm saying today, if you have a really sharp memory, and many of you do, uh, will be redundant. I don't mind that because there are some who were not in those classes, and we forget sometimes, unfortunately. And so we're going to go back over some things about the Psalms. and I hope maybe talk about a few new things as well. Incidentally, before I forget it, and I would, what, what was unusual, there was one unusual thing about our study this summer on the Psalms. And anybody tell me what that was? We didn't finish the study because the last lesson was in August. I think it was the 27th and we didn't have any services that day because most of us couldn't get to the building that day. And so we could say our study in Psalms was somewhat incomplete. Now that last lesson was on Psalm 119, which is the longest of the Psalms. And so I wish we had the time to go back over it. I may, if I don't talk too long on other things, I may be able to mention a couple of things that I wanted to say about Psalm 119. Incidentally, I was going to teach that class, and I had it prepared. Uh, I may have taught Janice at home. I don't know. Um, What about the Psalms? Well, the Hebrew word or title literally means songs of praise. And, and, and that word that is the Hebrew title comes from the same root word that gives us the, the word we use, hallelujah. It's the same root word for that one. The English title is Psalms, of course, and it comes from the Greek word psalmus. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that that's just a transliterated word. If the word psalms doesn't sound that easy to understand as an English word, it's because it's just a transliteration. They just took psalmus and made it into another word, psalms, and it means songs. Uh, Psalms is unlike some of the other books of the Old Testament in that it does not tell a story, a historical story, or does not simply relate a theme of some sort. Um, The individual psalms, there are 150 of them, the individual psalms may shed light on certain historic events, but not too often. And for the most part, we could say they were devotional. A lot of people say, let's 
let's do our devotional from the Psalms because that is a fitting use of them. The, the book is divided into five groups of Psalms. Now, if you'll turn to the beginning of Psalm, Psalm 1, the, the, the most Bibles that we use, and I'm assuming yours is this way, uh, will have at the beginning of these five books, like book one, my, my Bible begins book one, Psalm 1 through 41. And so that's book one. Book two in your Bible is 42 through 72. Book three is 73 through 89. Book four is 90 through 106. And book five is 107 through 150. Now what's... The, 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 so what we have are books within book, okay? Or at least they're called books. The, the interesting thing about this is that there is no specific reason given for that grouping. We, in fact, we don't know who grouped them. But, and, and, and there have been some people who've tried to explain why they think that these books exist the way they do, but, but those are not satisfying at all. And so basically we just say we just accept the fact that someone put these together and that God was willing for these things to be listed in groups now, we talked in our series on the Psalms several times about superscriptions. And superscriptions are headings above certain Psalms that sometimes tell us facts like who wrote it, the basis for writing it, and even how the Psalm is to be used. And we noted in that series that these superscriptions do not are not inspired, in other words, they are not considered inspired superscriptions, but we do know that they're very old. And for the most part, they have been generally accepted as being accurate. So if there is a superscription that says this is written by David, we've generally looked at it and said, yeah, we can believe that. Now, we just don't go to the bank on that. In other words, we don't insist David had to write that one because the superscription says he did. But for the most part, we have believed that those are correct. If they are correct, you hear that word, if, if they're correct, 73 of the Psalms are directly attributed to David, 73 of them. Two of them are attributed to his son Solomon. I thought about that a little bit, and maybe you have too, um, Father didn't always pass along to a son his own special interest. Um, David, because he was a psalmist, was a songwriter, we might say. Poetic songs. And Solomon was evidently not. He wasn't a songwriter. Only two of these. Now, Solomon had a different skill, right? He wrote Proverbs. David didn't write a lot of Proverbs. In fact, I don't know how many you could say were David's Proverbs. But, but so here are two different uh, generations uh, uh, and, and are different in their skills. 23 of the Psalms are supposed to come from two men named Asaph and Korah. 
One psalm comes from a man named Heman, H-E-M-A-N, and one psalm from Ethan, and then one psalm, the 90th psalm, is even attributed to Moses. If that's true, I would say that's the oldest psalm we have. And somehow or another, God intended for that psalm to be a part of the 150 psalms. The, the rest of them then, if you take all those at them together, the rest of the psalms are anonymous as to authorship. We don't really know who wrote them. We might look at them and we might say, I can see David in that one or something else, but we don't know that for certain. Last time in our study of Psalms, we noted this. I mentioned it last week, but we didn't really get into it. Uh, we began last week, as we were going to survey five books, we looked at Job, and I told you that we are now entering what are called books of poetry in, in, in our grouping of books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those five books are considered books of poetry. What we have to recognize is that Hebrew poetry is not like English poetry. And, and, and some people might get confused when they say, well, these are supposed to be books of poetry. They don't sound like poetry to me. And, and, and we recognize the differences, and then we understand why. Uh, the, the main feature of Hebrew poetry is what we call parallelism. Parallelism. In other words, these are not things like this. They are things like this, or maybe if you want to go like this, they're parallel to each other. And, and uh, that means that Hebrew poetry balances thought, not sound. Thought, not sound. You remember the illustration that I used? Ogden Nash? Anybody? See? See how quickly you forget? The trouble with a kitten is that it soon grows up to be a cat. That cat. That cat. That's what English poetry is generally about. Now, there may be some exceptions. But for the most part, we're looking for rhyme, aren't we? Words after incident, we have a lot of that in our songs, don't we? But, but, but English poetry does that. Hebrew poetry is not interested in sounds coming out alike. It's interested in thoughts being completed and coming out alike. And so what, what happens in Hebrew poetry is that the first line asserts something and the second line of the poetry parallels it. In some form. We'll see how. Now generally there are just two lines. Here's a thought. There's a thought. It's not always that way. There can be three lines. There can be four lines. And in some rare cases even five lines. Generally just two. And there are at least four prominent kinds of parallelism. Here's some examples. We're going to look at some of these. Look at, look at uh, Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, these are technical terms. Forgive me for that, but that's what they are. This is called synonymous parallelism. Sin with. 
And what synonymous parallelism means is that the second line reinforces the thought of the first line. You see it? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Those are parallel thoughts. Uh, look at Psalm 114. If you don't get anything else, you'll get practice in turning in your Bible. Psalm 114. Here is a psalm that is eight verses long. And every verse is an example of synonymous parallelism. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. That's the same thing, just stated two different ways. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. Verse 3, the sea saw it and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hill like lambs. Incidentally, there's your English poetry. What ails you, O sea, that you fled, O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. That's synonymous parallelism. And there are a number of passages uh, in the Psalms that are that type of parallel statement. Now look at the first uh, psalm, and, and we'll be going back here more than once, but look at Psalm 1 and verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. This is called antithetical, antithetical parallelism. Anti, the first word against or opposed to. Uh, and so what that is, is that the second line states a contrasting thought in regard to the first line. So here's a statement. Here's a contrasting thought. Uh, I'll give you another example. Look at Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Look at verse 5. It does it twice. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. You see the opposite there? Anger, favor. The second part of the verse, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So it's the opposite, see. Now, look at Psalm 9. Psalm 9. And verse 10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This is called synthetic parallelism. Sin is with. But synthetic it means the thought that is expressed in line one is extended and then made complete in line two. Look at it again. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Look at Psalm 19 for another example of the same situation. Psalm 19, beginning verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. See, those are the same things. But look at the completion of thought, making wise the simple. Verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So there's a completion of the thought. Something's added to it and then is completed by it. Psalm 77. 77. And verse 1. 77 verse 1. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to God with my voice. To God with my voice. And he gave ear to me. This is called climactic parallelism. Climactic. Which means that the second line repeats part of the first line. And then adds a new thought. And so... Uh, uh, to, to give the final idea. Then look at Psalm 94. And you see another example. Psalm 94. And verse 1. Psalm 94 verse 1. O Lord God to whom vengeance belongs. O God to whom vengeance belongs. See the repetition there. Shine forth. Shine forth. That's the new idea. Vengeance belongs to you. Vengeance belongs to you. Shine forth. And that likely means more than just shine, shine forth in judgment, probably. Okay, those are just four examples, and some have found another type or so. But, but those are the predominant kinds of parallelism. But that's what you need to look for in the psalm. What you will find as you read the psalms, if you read them carefully, are the deepest feelings that can be expressed by man. I, re I really believe that, the deepest feelings that man can express. You know, a, a lot of us say, well, I, I just can't put it into words. And, and that's true at times. I, I can't say it the way I really feel it. But this is as close as you get to saying what you feel. And, of course, it was done by inspiration. And whether it is praise to God or petition to him, uh, asking him for something, or penitence, seeking God's forgiveness, whatever it is, it comes from a desire to reach out to God. I think you could say of the Psalms, it is a reaching out to God. Either to thank him, reaching out to him to ask him for help, or reaching out to admit we need help and forgiveness. I would say this about Psalm. It, it ought to be read thoughtfully and carefully and slowly. I, I think the danger that that I have had, maybe you've never had this. Some of the Psalms are short. You can get through them just like that. I started the year reading the Psalms. First thing I read, well, I got through them quickly. I don't know that was the best thing to do. Uh, I think there's more value in reading slowly and thoughtfully, maybe reading a psalm and closing your Bible and then just saying, what do I get from that? How, how does that affect me? What should, I, what should I do about what I've read? I think that, that's a better approach. What are some of the major themes of the psalms? 
Well, one of the things at the very top of the list has to be the character of God. There are a number of insights in the Psalms to the nature of God and his character. And we find out things like his being infinite, infinite, his being infinite. Um, look at Psalm 139, Psalm 139. This is a familiar one to many. God possesses what we call omni-characteristics. Omni means that these are the all characteristics of God. Humans possess some degree of certain characteristics. God possesses all of it. And so, in, in the matter of knowledge, uh, humans may know a lot. You can, you can take some really smart people, but they only know a limited amount. And you take God, and he knows everything. He is omniscient. He knows it all. Uh, there are some people who are powerful, but they don't have the power of God because he has all power. He's omnipotent. And, and so what, what we see in the Psalms are these all characteristics of God, particularly in this Psalm. In verses 1 through 6, he is all-knowing. Notice, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The psalmist is just, uh, if this is the psalm of David, it's attributed to him. He said, what? When I think of the fact that you know everything about me, my every thought, my every word, you see it all, I, I can't get over that. It's just too wonderful to comprehend. And then in verses 12, 7 through 12, God is all present. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. And incidentally, hell is not eternal hell as some people think of it. It's in the grave. If I'm in heaven or if I'm in the grave, you're everywhere. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. The night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. You have to wonder sometimes if everyone comprehended the real saying in Psalm 139, would we be more careful in our lives? It's very tempting to say, um, and I'll just do this and nobody will know about it. Now, there's always one's going to know about it. Whatever you do, he's going to know it. You can't hide it from him. Because he knows what's in your mind. He knows what's in your actions. Verse 13 through 18, he talks about how powerful God is. You have formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. 
Incidentally, did the psalmist believe that he was a viable being in the mother's womb? Yeah, absolutely. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Incidentally, not a product of the slime of the earth. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. From before you're born till after you die, God is there. What a wonderful psalm. Um, not, not only is our, do we see the omni-characteristics of God, but we also see the goodness of God. And, and we don't have the time to look at all of these, but just look at Psalm 103 for a moment. Psalm 103, one of the typical psalms that show the goodness of God. And, and here's how it begins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your mouth, your youth is re renewed like the eagles. On, on and on that psalm would go talking about the goodness of God. In, in Psalm 5, Psalm 5, there's another characteristic of God that's extremely important, and that is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation, give ear to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, in the morning I will direct it to you, I will look up. Notice, now notice, for you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight, you hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, and then so on. And I, I'll not go through all of that. Um, verse, let me skip down to verse 11 for just a moment. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let, all, let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. You would expect the righteous God to bless righteous people. And he certainly does that according to the psalmist. Psalm 51 is a very familiar psalm to most of us. We studied it, I think, uh, during our series uh, in the summer. Uh, this psalm is believed, and you notice the superscription, Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into uh, Bathsheba, after he had committed that terrible act of adultery. And, and the prophet courageously had come to him, told him that little story about the rich man who stole a poor man's lamb, uh, not because he needed it, but because he just took it and fed it to his company. 
And David gets incensed and he says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, that's you. You're the man. You've stolen another man's wife. And, and you deserve to die. David was not like a lot of people. A lot of people in our world are immoral and commit adultery and said, it's my business. My business. Uh, I don't care, maybe somebody says. David wasn't that way. He was struck by the truth of his sinfulness and he repented. And, and this is him pouring out his heart to God in asking God for mercy on him and believing that God will grant that mercy. You know, here's one of the difficulties that we have sometimes. We know when we sin. I'm not talking about adultery anymore. But we know when we sin that we need forgiveness. And we ask God. But do we believe God really hears us and answers us? Because that's critical. Let me tell you, I don't want to shatter anybody's false illusions, or maybe I do. Don't, don't pray to God if you don't believe He's going to do what you ask Him to do. Why should you waste your breath? In, in fact, in the New Testament, we're told the man who doubts, he gets nothing. And so if you pray to God and you don't feel like God's going to do what you ask Him to do in forgiving, you don't even pray, because He won't. God expects us to believe, as David believed, that he would create in him a new heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51, beautiful song. Now, one other, and, and uh, couldn't get through without this one, Psalm 23. The, the most uh, quoted, the most talked about psalm of all the psalms shows us that God is a shepherd to his people. He's a shepherd to his people. He cares for his people. And, and, and David, of course, is said to have written that psalm. And, and we are thankful when we can say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Okay, that's just one of the themes, and that is the character of God. But a second theme is the coming Messiah. A number of passages look forward to a future time when one anointed by God is going to come. And that, of course, would be Jesus Christ. Um, we, we're, time will not allow us to look through all these, but let, let me just give you some examples here. Psalm 2 will be quoted from in Acts 4. Psalm 2 will be quoted in Acts 4, verses 25 through 28. Psalm 16 will be quoted in Acts, 20, Acts 2, 24 through 31. Psalm 22 will be quoted in Matthew 27, 35, and 36. Psalm 45 will be quoted in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Psalm 89 will be quoted in Acts 2, 30. Psalm 110 will be quoted six times in Matthew. No, six different passages, one in Matthew, one in Acts, and four in Hebrews. Matthew, Acts, four in Hebrew. All of those Psalms are directly related to Jesus. And, and the ones who use them don't leave us in any doubt as to what they are saying that Psalm refers to. 
you know, they're not saying, well, here's a psalm. We don't know who it's really talking about. They know it's about Christ. And, and, and it was on that basis that those psalms were quoted in the events in which they were quoted and recorded. These relate to Jesus. Now keep in mind, and we will look at one passage. Look at Luke 24. Luke 24. Now, this is not the only, I mean, this is a statement of Jesus, but the other writers have said these passages are about Jesus. They are fulfilled in him. But Psalm 24 and verse 44, Jesus says, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus expands this even more to say, not only in the Psalms, but in the law of Moses and in the prophets, they're all writing about me. Okay, now I'm going to skip number C on your, uh, I mean number three on your outline for just a moment. I'm going to come back to it, but let me mention this because I don't want to run out of time before saying this. One of the great things about the Psalms is it mentions two ways to live. And, and we noted this earlier. These are not just songs of praise. They're that, but they're a lot more than that. They are also instructional. And incidentally, Colossians 3.16 bears that out. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We're not just singing. We are, in fact, by singing the truth, instructing each other. Incidentally, that's... That's one reason why playing on a piano can't do for you what Colossians 3.16 can do. You know, if we had a piano up there and somebody played a very beautiful piece of music today, you'd have to somehow translate those notes into what you think they ought to say to you. They wouldn't tell you what, what you ought to hear. But when we sing a song today and we're singing to each other you know what we're saying, don't you? That's why we're singing. We're, we're instructing and encouraging each other as well as praising God at the same time. Well, many people think that the first psalm, Psalm 1, is placed there intentionally so that it can introduce and set the tone of the entire book. And I don't know whether that's true or not, but it makes sense in a way. Because what it shows is the difference between the righteous man and the ungodly man. Verses 1 through 3, we see the righteous man, and he finds his delight in God's will, and the result of this is certain. Verse 3, it's certain. The ungodly man is different, verses 4 and 5, and they will not be approved of God. So before you read any other psalms you have, of the psalms you have already seen in the very first psalm, there are two ways to live. Only one of them is acceptable to God. And if you're not a part of the godly part, you're a part of the ungodly part. Godly part, righteous man, man who loves God, does God's will, he's going to be blessed. Ungodly man faces destruction eternally. Very quickly. Um, the, the problem of imprecatory psalms. That's a mouthful. Imprecatory. 
The word imprecatory means to invoke evil upon, to curse. Some people look at the Psalms and they read some of the statements of the Psalms and they say, wow, that's beneath uh, God's dignity. Uh, because they seem to indicate a desire to pour out wrath and destruction on individuals and on groups and people. And in some cases, some of those statements are troubling if you do not take them for what they're really worth. Keep this in mind. These imprecatory statements by David and others calling for wrath, are not a call for personal revenge. David is not saying, Oh God, let me strike all my enemies. But they are a call for God's wrath so that he can be vindicated. So that people will understand evil is not good. Evil will be punished. And in certain statements, we find it is somewhat like saying, You reap what you sow. So you ungodly people who, who don't do God's will, you will be punished, but that's what you deserve. You get what you've sown. Uh, 